Good morning. For those of you that might be here for the first time, my name is Dave, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks, and it's wonderful to have you with us. You know, you, uh, you can probably attend churches in this area that may do certain things better, but you will never attend a church that appreciates your visit any more than we do. So thank you for being with us this morning if you're here for the first time. And, and by the way, you picked really a, a, a splendid time to be with us because we are wading into the fourth chapter in a series on the book of Second Corinthians. The series is titled, Weak is Strong. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Second Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. And while you're doing that, I just wanted to thank those of you that prayed for the Sojourn Network Intensive, which happened about 10 days ago. Uh, for our guests, we're part, this local church is part of a network called Sojourn Network. It's a network that, that exists to help pastors grow, plant, grow, and multiply healthy churches. And um, I know Paul updated you this past week a little bit about what took place at the, uh, at the intensive, but I just wanted to, to kind of come behind that because I specifically asked you to pray. And for those of you that did pray, thank you very much. The, uh, the event just, just exceeded our expectations. The, the theme of the event was the soul of eldership. And so there were a number of different seminars that were pulled together. Actually, Paul did a seminar a um, number of different seminars pulled together, main sessions. There was very rich fellowship taking place. There was uh, a, lot of, a lot of training going on. And uh, I'm just grateful that we are a part of that. I'm grateful that you're a part of that. And, uh, and I want to thank you for your giving to that as well, because without that, that event would not take place. So thank you for praying. title of this morning's message is Lifting the veil, lifting the veil. And I'm going to begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, when your word characterizes the world apart from you, you say that men love darkness rather than light. And we pray this morning that in light of that reality that you would use the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ and that it would break open in a new way in our hearts this morning, that we would see you more clearly and communicate you more 
with an even greater compulsion and greater compassion. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, to truly appreciate this passage, I, I want to invite you to do a little exercise. I want to invite you to think back to the last time you were saying something to somebody or something to a group, and it was just evident to you that the entire point that you were trying to make eluded them entirely. You know, you were as clear as you could possibly be, but for some reason the lights just weren't on, or that flight wasn't landing on that day, or, you know, that, that experience of, boy, they're just not getting it. They just don't get me. Now, the moms that are here are probably thinking, are you kidding? I mean, I just dropped my kids off 15 minutes ago in children's ministry. That was my entire experience. Maybe that was your experience to the wives that were on their way here this morning 30 minutes ago as you're trying to explain to your husband what needs to be done around the house today. You know, we, you might be here as a teacher, or maybe you homeschool your kids, or you're, you're a manager, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, that's my experience each week from Monday through Friday. I remember being in, in seminary many, many, many years ago and uh, studying Greek. And <clears throat> about halfway through, the se- half- halfway through the semester, there was a kid that was in the class, and I'm not sure this kid was really applying himself. I'm not sure he took it seriously, but he raised his hand in the middle of class one day, and the, the, the professor called on him, and he just said, listen, can you please tell us all what's the easiest way to understand this Greek? Now, our professor was a, he was a somewhat self-important man, and so he kind of drew himself up for a moment and then took stock of the guy that had answered the question and kind of sized him up, and he said, let me tell you a story. He said, when I was eight years old, he said, I couldn't get the multiplication table by seven. He said, one through six, I did great, but he said, there was something about the sevens that just locked me up. He said, one day I went home, and I lived with my grandparents at that time, and he said, I showed my grandmother my grades for that multiplication test for the sevens, and I failed it. And my grandmother was so angry that she marched me to the foot of the attic, and she insisted that I go up in the attic where there was a chalkboard with a piece of chalk. And he kind of explained things this way, like he was, like he was Mr. Rogers, and the rest of us were the kids in the class. And there was a piece of chalk there, he said, and He said, and and my grandmother made me stand in front of the chalkboard week after week until I got the seven table down. And then there was this long, pregnant pause. And and he literally did this. And he went like this. Practice. He said, practice. That's how you learn the Greek. That's how you learn how to do this Greek stuff. And he kind of, you know, stepped back and kind of put his shoulders back and said, now are there any other questions? And I... I raised my hand. I said, yeah, what's, what's seven times nine? <laughs> because my thinking was, if he couldn't learn the seven table, how's he possibly going to teach us Greek? But, I mean, that's just how my mind works. But, but, but my, my point is, this was kind of a, for him, it was kind of a, a long-winded way to tell that student and the rest of us that, Hey, you just don't get it. The veil is still there. You're just not going to be able to avoid or escape the hard work necessary to learn what you need to learn. You don't get it. 
Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we encounter Paul in a time of personal turmoil. Because in orbit around him are just a number of people that just don't get it. The allegiance of the Corinthians has been unpredictable. In fact, presently, they're under the seductive spell of Paul's opponents. Specifically, these, these intruders that have arrived in the local church there. And their fundamental aim is to undermine Paul's authority within the Corinthians and to win the Corinthians over to themselves. Think of them as a kind of, you know, like old school internet troll. You know, what they're doing is they're looking for Paul's faults, they're finding Paul's faults, and they're publishing Paul's faults for everybody to see and hear. And so the Corinthians are hearing these incessant questions about Paul, these incessant questions that are coming from these intruders about Paul's sufficiency as a leader, about his credentials as a teacher, about his errors regarding the law. And so Paul was at a point in his ministry where he must give a defense, he must give an account, and this letter that we have before us is his defense. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul has turned his attention in his defense to the clarity of his teaching. Because his opponents are saying to people among the Corinthian church, we don't get him. Do you get him? Do you really understand him? We don't understand him. And we think there's good reason for that. All he does is talk about Jesus. All he does is bring this, is is to pester people with this kind of Messiah-centered gospel that nobody really gets. He talks and talks and talks, and it just sounds obtuse. It strikes us as absurd. He talks, but he makes no sense. I noticed there's there's a Peanuts movie out now. I mean, I was raised on Charlie Brown. I don't know if anybody else can say that, but, you know, Charles Schultz had this vision of, that he wanted to create of a comic strip where it was just a world of kids. There were no adults, no teachers, no parents. So anytime, if you ever watch the cartoons at, 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 at uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas or around Halloween, Anytime a parent was talking or anytime an adult was talking or a teacher, it, their, their voice was never heard. It was just this, wah, 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 wah. You know what I'm talking about? Or am I just like, is he losing his mind up there? Okay, you know what, you know what I'm talking about. See, that's really what's going on in the Corinthian church for Paul. It's like there are no adults. It's like Paul is the adult, but he just can't get through to the kids. And you have these other kids that have come from another playground, and they're disrupting things for Paul and for his relationship with the Corinthian church. Specifically in relationship to his character, his his manner, and his message. And so this passage is where Paul explains to the Corinthians exactly why his message and his ministry is veiled to his critics. And he offers two different reasons for that, with the first one being, it is veiled by the enemy. It's veiled by the enemy. And so that's where Paul comes right out of the gate. He says, 
And even if our gospel is veiled, because that's the criticism, your gospel is veiled. So Paul starts by addressing the criticism that his gospel is blurred. His gospel is unclear. And he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled because they are perishing. See, Paul is trying to school the Corinthians in discernment. And he's saying to them, my friends, please, help, help, please understand this. Let me help you understand this. There's a reason why they feel the way they feel. They are confused and critical because they are perishing. Because they have no spiritual sight. The gospel is veiled to them. Their destination is not veiled, but the gospel is veiled. See, this passage reminds us that with the gospel, it's not first about the eloquence of man. It's not first about the packaging of the message. And by the way, that's where the opponents were. That's where they were coming from. It's about the eloquence. It's about the packaging of the message. No, no, for Paul, what he's trying to tell the Corinthians is it's about the hearer's heart. It's about their heart. You remember the story that Jesus told? Sower went out to sow. Sows a seed along the ground, hits four different kinds of soil. There's rocky soil, and there's hard soil, and there's thorny soil. And, and basically what, what Jesus is saying is there's one seed that's being thrown out all along the land, but there's four different kinds of soil. The difference is not in the seed, the message, it's in the soil and how, it, how it's received. Some of the soil is hard, some of it is rocky, some of it is thorny. You try to sow seed on it, and it's just not ready to receive the seed. It can't receive the seed. Paul's saying, in like manner, some hearts have a veil over them. The gospel comes, and it hits a hard heart. The gospel comes, and the heart is not ready to receive. Now, Paul doesn't just leave that hanging out there. He goes on to explain why that is the case. Paul says, let me clarify why that goes on. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. In fact, Paul goes on to say, and this is exactly how it works. Let me explain. He says, it keeps them, they keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, this kind of harkens back to that passage I alluded to earlier in John chapter 3, verse 19, where, where we are described, apart from Jesus Christ, as loving darkness rather than light. But what happens here is Paul kind of pulls back the spiritual veil on what that really represents. In other words, we have an opportunity to peer behind what is pushing that darkness, what is protecting that darkness, what is infusing that darkness with power. In fact, Paul's diagnosis here is utterly fascinating. Paul says, behind a stubborn heart that resists the gospel, there is a kind of organized spiritual opposition that has a leadership that is led by the God of this world, Satan, who consistently and repeatedly throughout the world marshals his forces towards a singular battle tactic, and that is 
Blind the minds, remove the sight. Blind the minds, remove the sight. Keep them blinded, keep them blind. It's interesting in, uh, in screw tape letters, which if you're not familiar with uh, the screw tape letters, that's a book by C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis portrays a demon, kind of a head demon, his name is Screwtape, and he's working with a younger demon trying to train him and tutor him, and the younger demon's name is Wormwood. So the whole book is this interchange between Screwtape and Wormwood. And in one portion of the book, Wormwood has a subject, a person, a guy that he's working upon named Mark. And Mark struggles with anger, and anxiety. And so Screwtape, the master demon, is trying to help Wormwood, the guy he's tutoring, to convert Mark's weakness into blindness. Do you get that? He's trying to help him work Mark's weakness, convert Mark's weakness into blindness. And this is what Wormwood tells, this is what Screwtape tells Wormwood, quote, Since he is inclined, that is Mark, since Mark is inclined to interpret everything through his needs and wants, you will find much satisfaction in aggravating his judgments of others. His wife and children have their own faults and blind spots. Lead him to magnify the error of their ways. Breed his obsession to take everything personally. Let him feel in his gut that he has the right to have things the way he wants. Then listen to this. He says, blind him to any effort to see things through their eyes. There's two ways the enemy blinds minds. There's two ways that he does it. He gets us first screaming, I am right. In this situation, I am right. I'm almost godlike in my rightness. And then as we're standing there with all of our righteousness, he kind of slips into our mind this idea. Not only am I right, but I was wronged. I'm right. I was wronged. And see, that, that condition goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were deliriously happy until Satan convinced them they were not. And that's exactly what he said. You will surely not die. What are you talking about? You're not going to die. Because God knows something about you. You think God is this way, but he's not. God knows that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to become just like him. And he fears that about you. In other words, God who advertises himself as if he loves you, he's really depriving you. He's really withholding from you. Actually, you are a victim of God's sin. And what burst forth from that was original sin. Nothing blinds the mind quicker than than from seeing the light of the gospel. Nothing forms a thicker veil than a religious person who can only see sin in other people cannot locate it within themselves at all. Oh, they're in the marriage with maybe a theological understanding that they're sinners, 
They're parenting children with something they affirm when they sing on Sunday morning. But I mean actually being able to identify where sinfulness really exists. And ultimately the effect is they don't need the gospel. They have the law. They don't need the gospel. They don't need a savior because they can't see sin. And because they can't see sin, why would they need a savior? And so what Paul was doing here for the Corinthians is he's exposing the strategy of the enemy. He's saying the ultimate aim of the enemy is to, well, let's just use his word, keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Paul says, Corinthians, please understand the reason they don't comprehend is because they are veiled by the enemy. That's point one. Point two is, They are veiled by ministry. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because Paul now turns to the next reason why the critics of his ministry are so misguided. Why the critics of his ministry might best be named Missing the Point International Ministries. That's who they serve. And he says it specifically in verse 5. He says, For... What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, that point is not only a defense, but it's a distinction that Paul's trying to draw. A distinction between how he is among the Corinthian people and how they are among the Corinthian people. He's saying, these men have come to you. And think about how they've come to you. Corinthians, in order to get this, you're going to have to think about this. Think about how they are among you. These men have come. They've come boasting about themselves. They've come attacking me. And in doing so, they prove they are blind. They are veiled to really what is the true nature of gospel ministry and what is the fruit of when true gospel ministry is applied within a church. And so tucked within these verses, or this verse 5, is really a kind of quick two-question test to know whether a preacher or a leader that you're under or you're listening to has sight, or whether they're more like these idiots who were in the Corinthian church trying to disturb the peace. These are questions that we can and we should ask of our pastors and our elders and our leaders. There's two of them. Here's the first one, question number one. Question number one is aimed at proclamation. And the question is, who is exalted when the leader speaks? Who is exalted when the leader speaks, when the leader counsels, when the leader preaches? Go back to Paul's word. For what we proclaim, Corinthians, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, Corinthians, please look at this. Look carefully at this. True gospel ministry preaches not oneself, but Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, from the other side of that equation, from the preaching side of that equation, One of the temptations for preachers is that there is, each and every week, a thousand ways that you can smuggle yourself into a message. Because with every sermon, a preacher has a microphone, an audience, 
and a sinful heart. And all of those three can work together at times. I recall times preaching, and I say this with shame, when I bent illustrations just to make Dave look good, make Dave look smart, make Dave look big, look exalted. You know, we're going to discover later on in 2 Corinthians, that's why this, this, this series is so amazing. This series is mind-blowing. And let me give you an illustration because we're going to discover later on in 2 Corinthians that Paul's definition of leadership causes him to boast not in his strengths, but in his weaknesses. That his whole approach to, the, to, to these intruders within the church, ultimately he's going to be saying, you think I'm weak? Oh, you don't know the beginning of it. You think I've got problems? Oh, sit back. I'm going to fill your day with problems because I know that that makes much of Jesus Christ because he can use somebody like me. You know, there was once a renowned agnostic. His name was Hubert Spencer. And Hubert Spencer decided that one Sunday, as a kind of sociological experiment, he was going to visit the church of one Charles Spurgeon. And so he went to a service, and upon returning, his assistant, who was aware of this experiment he was doing, immediately asked him, he said, well, what did you think of him? And almost as if he was pulled out of a a kind of hypnotic state, he just kind of said, what, about who? And the assistant said, you know what I'm talking about, about the preacher, about Charles Spurgeon. And this is how Spencer responded. He said, oh, Oh, Spurgeon. He said, I I haven't been thinking about him at all. He said, I've been occupied thinking about Spurgeon's Jesus. I listened to Spurgeon, but all I heard was Jesus. See, that's the point that Paul's trying to get to the Corinthians. He says, you want to measure me? You want to measure them? You want to understand who's really successful as defined by God, as defined by Scripture, from whom do you hear about this Jesus? Because true gospel ministry proclaims not oneself, but the Savior. It's the only thing that lifts the veil. So that question number one is aimed at proclamation. Who is exalted when the leader speaks? And question number two is aimed at application. Does the leader's life reveal service? Does the leader's life reveal service? Because Paul adds this, with ourselves, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. And and we are your servants for Jesus' sake. See, this is our role as preachers. This is our role as leaders. This is our role Among you, we are there to serve. I mean, his logic is really, it's not just like counterintuitive, but there's also a a simplicity to it as well. He's basically saying, Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then he's master. Where you have masters, you have servants. If Jesus is Lord, and we are his representatives, if leaders are his ambassadors, then his ambassadors should be serving that which they represent. I mean, just imagine, you know, an ambassador strolling in for trade talks 
in cut-off jeans, sandals, and, you know, smelling like he was out in the parking lot smoking dope. Now, there are times we think, well, hey, that might be an improvement. But that's not the point. The point is that, that if he or she is representing the nation, they can't be first representing themselves. If he or she is representing the nation, they can't be representing their own interests or preferences. And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. That's his point. He's saying, listen, the opponents serve themselves. And, and because they serve themselves, they serve the law. And if you want to check it out, just check out how they twist the law to validate their own righteousness rather than to reveal their sin. He says they missed the whole purpose of the law. The law was given to reveal sin. They think the law was given to validate their standing in the community. The law was given to basically inform people this is who we are, as if we embody the law. He says they don't get the law. The law was given to remind us all that we fall gloriously short of it and we need something from outside of ourselves to solve the problem. We need a Savior. But they miss that. He said that produces Pharisees, not servants. Leaders who live their lives measuring others by a standard that they don't intend to keep because they can't keep it. But when Jesus, he says, when Jesus becomes the Savior... It has an effect on his ambassadors. When Jesus is master, the ambassadors are servants. When Jesus is Lord, the ambassadors are servants. When Jesus is the Savior, the ambassadors follow suit. They, they serve. He says that's what lifts the veil to true ministry success. And that's the kind of success that I've observed around here. I mean, Kim and I arrived here two and a half years ago. And ever since the day we've arrived, we have always been amazed to discover just some of the ways that the leaders in this church, the elders of this church, seek to serve Four Oaks. They seek to do it in obscurity. They seek to do it not proclaiming themselves. They seek to do it serving the Savior. Kim and I are part of Carrie Schoolfield's small group. Great small group. Carrie is... Each and every week, he's sending out emails, making phone calls, just making sure the people in the small group are being cared for. There are people in this church that have been prayed for for years by Kent Hamilton, who's up day and night just praying for people. They'll never know until heaven because you got a guy over here who's a leader who doesn't want to be known. He just wants to pray. I mean, Ron, Ron Machado... Ron Machado would never, ever, ever talk about himself. Ron Machado doesn't even know Ron Machado exists. <laughs> but he's always serving Saturday night, or Saturdays, evangelizing, Wednesday night, high school boys. He's, he's coaching fellowship group leaders. He's just faithfully doing eldership things. See, these men are not up here on the weekend, on Sunday morning with microphones. No, they're just everywhere else. They're everywhere else serving this local church. I mean, I'm always surprised to discover the, the sheer number of people that your lead pastor, Paul, meets with each and every week. The dude is just connecting with people all over the place every week. And you only see him publicly. Boy, I wish you could see him privately. See, Paul's point here is 
You want to see whether the veil is lifted for a leader, Corinthians? Do you want to understand whether they have a veil or not? It's easy. Just trace their life back. Trace their belief back to their life. Does it go back to the law? Does it go back to the Savior? If it goes back to the Savior, then you see service. That's what you want to look for, Corinthians. And so he informs them. They are veiled by the enemy. They are veiled by their understanding of ministry and what they're looking for as successful ministry. So veiled by the enemy, veiled by ministry. And then Paul in the last verse, in the final verse, verse 6, he, he kind of explains to them why he gets it and why you get it too. And this, this point I want to summarize as irresistible light. This is the reason he gets it. Irresistible light. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Now, this is very important. Because this is not Paul just kind of waxing metaphorical and thinking, you know what, let me just use light. I haven't used that in my writing for a bit. he's, He's trying to explain the difference between the opponents and him, the opponents and his ministry. He's trying to help them to see What makes verse 5 a reality? What makes the fact that he proclaims not himself but Jesus Christ, what makes that a reality in his life? And so what he does, listen to this, he reaches all the way back to the beginning. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. He goes all the way back to creation itself. And he points out that that's how they first saw. That's how he first saw Jesus as Lord. That it was a light, a creating power that came from God, that switched on the light, that allowed him to see. Not because of the way he was parented. Not because of the school he attended. So it wasn't the church he was raised in. It wasn't the prayers that he prayed. Paul says it has to do with creation power. It has to do with creation light. And so the analogy he's drawing is between conversion and Genesis chapter 1. God creating light. Paul says the same God who spoke light into existence in Genesis Genesis chapter 1, that same God hits the soul's spotlight and turns it on Jesus. Jesus lights up in front of the soul. But God speaks that into being in the same way that God spoke light into being. It's like the God of creation just walks into the basement of our heart one day. Our heart that's like a cellar. It's it's morally dark. It's, It's moldy with sin. And he just reaches over on the wall and flips the switch. And all of a sudden the lights come on and there stands Jesus. We say, I didn't see you there. He said, well, I've always been here. Well, yeah, but I mean, I didn't even know you were around. Well, I understand the lights were off. But yeah, the lights are on now. That's right, I hit the lights. And, and so we begin to behold Him. We begin to see Him. Maybe at first it's just a shaft of light. But we begin to understand. See, this takes us back to that. Remember that chapter 3, verse 18? And we all with unveiled face, beholding the Lord of God, are being transformed. As we behold, we become 
As we behold, we're transformed. See, Paul's taking us back there. And he's saying, what we behold is now the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the shaft of irresistible light that has broken in and illuminated Christ for who he is. And by the way, for the guy that's talking here, this is not theoretical. Paul knows this, not simply because he's read about it, but because he's experienced it. This is the guy that was walking on the road to Damascus with a veil over his mind, completely darkened. Having disposed of Stephen, he was now intent on exterminating all of Christianity. By the way, as to the law, he was an expert. In fact, so devoted that his zeal for the law caused him to hunt Christians because that's how he applied it in the darkness of his mind, that he was so righteous that he needed to hunt and exterminate Christians. He describes himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. In other words, I was just like the agitators that are in in the Corinthian church. I was just like them. But God appeared to him in the person of Jesus Christ. Go this afternoon, read the account in the book of Acts. The first thing that's said is, a light shone upon Jesus. His first experience was light. And therefore, he beheld the glory of Jesus. And the light of knowledge spawned conviction in his heart. The scales fell. He could finally see, and he saw Jesus. And his heart was transformed, his dark mind was enlightened, the veil fell, his allegiances was changed. But how did it all happen? He saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And for him, it just lit up immediately. Now, for me, it didn't happen that way. You know, for me, it was just like a a small, it was a a flashlight beam on just a part of Jesus' face. And I thought, what? What's going on there? I've been reaching out to a guy who's an unbeliever. He's in the military, and he's been going through a a crisis lately. And so he kind of reached out to him and was talking to him on the phone a couple times. And then I sent along just this really simple gospel book that really just outlined kind of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. A couple days ago, I got a text from him where he told me he had read the book. And this is what he said. He said, I didn't realize that whole piece about being forgiven. He said, it was huge for me to begin to understand what Jesus did for us. And then he said, what Jesus did for me. He said, I'm amazed at the argument that the writer made. This is incredible. And you know what? I read that, and this is what I thought. It started. It's starting. A a shaft of light has broken through. The glory of God is breaking in, breaking over. See, when a shaft of light hits people, it creates a kind of pause in their soul. Wait a minute, what was that? I'm running fast, but what was that? You know, was that light? I think I need to stop and, and just take a look at that. I need to understand that. And then it starts to push forward questions in their mind. They begin to think about Jesus, and then they begin to think about God in a new way. And that's basically what's happening with this guy. He's, 
He's saying to me, I'm seeing Jesus just a little bit clearer. The forgiveness of God is lighting up for me right now. See, that's what happens when an irresistible light hits a dense veil. It's, it's a sunrise for the soul. Shafts of light breaking in all over the place. Listen, holiday season is almost upon us. I hope that's good news for you. Thanksgiving is about 10 days away. Christmas not long after that. And what that becomes for believers is an opportunity to kind of step outside of this world of, you know, that we're always kind of trafficking in and, and to, to get into the life of families, friends, and people that we don't see very often. Maybe people that don't know Jesus. I wonder what it would look like if we went to Thanksgiving this year with the goal of helping people see, not us, but Jesus. I mean, I know your opinion on Donald Trump is absolutely, absolutely critical to get across to those that are going to be around the Thanksgiving table, but I wonder what it would look like for us all, beginning with me, what would it look like for everyone to here that we're not making much of us, not making much of what we did this past year, but for some reason, we're making much of Jesus. Oh yes, of course, talk about current events. Grieve for France. Grieve for Paris. But let them also see how Jesus is glorious to you right now. How Jesus has been glorious to you in 2015. Yes, you've suffered, but you're still standing. Jesus has been glorious to you in 2015. And don't, don't worry about, you know, locking down a decision for Christ this Christmas. Because I don't think that's where it starts. I don't think that's the way we should be approaching it. I don't think that's how Paul was converted. I know that wasn't how I was converted. See, when, when human beings are confronted with something glorious, something spectacular, when we are confronted with something like that, the question is not, okay, what's your decision? You know, it's, it's really hard to know where to land with a question like that when you're beholding something like that. When you're beholding something glorious, the question becomes, how can you speed your way in that direction and begin to enjoy it in a whole new way? I mean, the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, my first thought was not, well, what do I do with this? I mean, this is unbelievable. What do I do with it? No. No, my first question was, let me behold this. Let me enjoy this. Let me gaze upon the grandeur of this magnificence. Let me drive back to Phoenix with Kim talking about what it is we saw and we experienced. See, this is what Paul's doing with the Corinthians. Paul was saying, Corinthians, that's the difference between them and me. That's the difference between the opponents and me. It's irresistible light. It's irresistible light, even just a shaft that has struck upon Jesus, has portrayed him for who he is, and you see it. I saw it. They don't see it. That's the difference between me and them. And he says in Corinthians, that's the difference between you and them as well. And Four Oaks Church, that's the difference in you also. We're talking about a light created by God. 
A light that lifted the veil off of your face that you could see. A light that made Jesus glorious to you. It is a light that dispelled the darkness of your sin. It is a light that has utterly transformed your life. And it is a light that we want to, this Christmas, this Thanksgiving, take to our family. Take to our friends. Take to our neighborhood and our community and ultimately as a local church. Let's plant churches so that we can take it outside of this community and take it all the way to the world. May we be so captivated by the glory of God that when people encounter us, they will say the same thing that Spencer said of Charles Spurgeon. Well, I'm not thinking about them at all. I'm thinking about their Jesus. Let that be said of us.